This is Splice. You're listening to a recorded session from Splice Beta 2022 in Chiang Mai. We've edited this, but only slightly. Hey, this is Rishad from Splice. This session is by our friend Jacopo Ottaviani from Code for Africa on how to write an amazing grant application and what to do when it all goes pear-shaped. If you're here, it's because you are interested in grants, and we'll be talking about grants. So a few words about me. I'm Jacopo Taviani. I come from Italy. I have a computer science background, but I fell in love with journalism uh, back during my university times. And I've been working for 10 years with grants in between, you know, in between the media sector and the development sector. I'm currently based in Rome, Italy. I've been working a lot between Europe and Africa. And for me, this is the first time I really interact with the Asian community of Splice. So I'm excited about that. Let's talk about grants. I mean, this is why we're here. So how many of you have ever had an experience with a grant? Have you ever applied for a grant? So please raise your hand. Almost all of you, that's good. Uh, how many of you won a grant? A good proportion of you <laughs> got a grant, that's great. I had the chance to talk with people who have a small startup where they're interested in to, you know, impact and how do they kind of transform the impact they do into fundable projects. The idea of this workshop is to think of a proposal together, basically, and try to fine tune a project idea and predict the problems that you might run into if you decide to apply for a grant. I'll spend a few words on how to find grants, because this is another question I get uh, very often. It's like, how do I find the grant? Or how do I find a donor that is willing to fund my projects or initiative? How does that work? So I can tell you how it works for me, from my point of view. You need to be creative at times, but I'll tell you how I usually act to clinch some money from a donor and to get my proposal accepted. At the end of the workshop, hopefully, you'll be having something sketched out on your uh, sheets that you find on your table. And we can discuss about your project ideas later on, and I can tell you what I think about them. This is the idea in a nutshell. So how do you start? Normally, applying for a grant and getting a grant is a matchmaking exercise. You're building bridges between the donor's agendas, because each donor has an agenda, right? So here we are not talking about investments, we are not talking about financial returns. We change lens, we talk about impact. So we'll define impact in a minute, but donors, unlike investors, they are not looking for money, but they're looking for change. So they want you, grantee, to change the reality you work into, the context you act on, you intervene into, and they want you to measure that change to justify their impact investment, so to speak. And obviously, each donor has an agenda. You need to match your project ideas with their agenda. Otherwise, they're not gonna invest into your work. So it's a matchmaking exercise. And there are two ways to approach this problem. You can study a donor, make a lot of research about a donor and try to match what they want with what your team is doing and what your team is best at. I'm assuming that you already have a team, but you can also be an individual. So in that case, the team is you. 
it's possible. I started as an individual freelancer applying for grants and I got some small grants a few years back and that's how I started, so it's totally fine. But I'll, I'll talk about team because it's usually teamwork. First, you can find a donor and then try to forge a project ideas that fits with the donor's agenda, leveraging your skill set as a team. The other approach is you detect a problem within you know, your audience. You wanna crack that problem, you wanna solve that problem, and then you, you will propose a solution to solve that problem and find a donor that, who might be interested in that solution. So that's the other way to approach this. But it's very important that you solve a problem. It can be also a micro problem. It doesn't need to be you know, changing the world. It can be something small. You can build on that and increase the change you, you make over time. That's why you get a grant normally, to solve a problem. If you are not solving a problem, you're probably getting a grant just for the sake of it. And uh, this feeds a broken system, which exists. Some you know, agencies, some organizations consume grants. Their business model is around grants. And this can lead to problems because they don't want to solve a problem. Otherwise, their business model will be undermined. So we want to avoid that. We want to solve a problem, right? So we want to try to change the system. How do you start? Like, how do you get a project idea that is fundable? Uh, there's not just one way to do that. There are multiple ways to do that. But normally, you need to talk with your audience. And to talk with your audience, normally, you need to get out of your bubble and try to mingle with your audience, interview your audience, listen to them, and understand what kind of problems they are facing to justify your intervention. Another way to get a project idea is to get inspired by projects made by other organizations and try to adapt them for your audience. And this, this is a totally fair approach, I think. I've done that many times. I can tell you about some examples later. But if you see something that works, you can replicate it and adapt it for your audience or for your local context. Yeah, and then, you know, it's easier to do it rather than talk about it. You just apply and make it. Something that donors don't like is overpromise. So if you overpromise something, serious donors will feel uncomfortable. So it's okay to be ambitious, but try to be realistic. Try to do something small rather than, you know, saying that you're gonna zero hunger in the world using your media startup. That's something that might not work. It's, this is, you know, obvious, but some people, you know, as they apply for $2 million, all of a sudden, you know, people say, okay, I'm gonna do this project and I'm gonna revolutionize the system. This doesn't really work and donors see that. So they have very sophisticated antennas and kind of radars to detect this kind of approach. A way I start when I don't have ideas, you know, when you run out of ideas, because you need to be creative and have an idea. I start from the SDGs. How many of you know the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations? So these are basically all the problems of the planet, summarized together into a list. The United Nations put together the SDGs. So another way to come up with a project idea that is fundable or potentially fundable with a grant is to pick one or more SDGs, try to do a little bit of research on why these SDGs are important within your audience, within your geographic area or region you are uh, operating into, 
and then come up with an idea. This is another simple way to kind of define a problem and a solution that can be approached with your methodology. Try to prioritize on tangible outputs rather than using buzzwords. Again, donors, I've seen many donors running away from proposals because they realize that it's a lot of, uh, you know, buzzwords, you know. There are buzzwords that are trendy. Think of blockchain, think of machine learning, think of, you know, all these things that are very, at some point it was data journalism. You have many others, I'm sure. You can figure out what kind of buzzwords are really just buzzwords. Make sure that you focus on the tangible outputs and avoid the kind of trendy, easy, cheesy buzzwords. How to find donors? When I entered this kind of market, it's a market, you know, it's a place where people meet and trade. And I didn't have any contact when I started 10 years ago. The best places to find donors are conferences. And I know that here at Splice, there are people who, who have connections with donors. And there are some donors here who might be interested in talking with you. So use the conferences as a, as a kind of entry point into the, the grant game. In addition to the conferences, you can use newsletters. There are newsletters that collect grant opportunities, and they just send them out for free. Uh, one of them is the IJNet by ICFJ, International Center for Journalists. They have a fantastic section on their website and a newsletter, publishing a list of grant opportunities on a regular basis. And there are opportunities all over the world. Some projects are, have specific kind of geographies. Some are global. I think there are a lot of grants for Southeast Asia that you might want to look into. And you can find them on IJNet for sure. And there are other sources as well. When you start building your network of donors, you will start following them on Twitter, LinkedIn. It's a process. There's no one way to do it all together. But you know, in a few years' time, if you invest into this, you can build trust relationship with them. So as it was mentioned by Sasa in the morning, reputation is very important. And donors talk with each other. Same as investors. So you need to cultivate your relationships, curate your portfolio, so show why your work is impactful, not just from a financial point of view, but also from a social point of view, from an SDG point of view. And then if you have never done that before, you can start with a pilot project and build on that. You know, it can be a media product for a marginalized community. It can be a chatbot helping people to find, you know, a doctor. It can be anything that, you know, is in between the media and the civic use of technology, for example. You can really come up with a mission for your initiative and try to find donors who are interested in that mission. These are three scenarios that I think are quite common. You know, again, you need to link project ideas with, with donors. So you can have a, an idea you believe in, like your startup idea. It can be an idea, a project idea or an initiative idea. I don't know, maybe training women in uh, Malaysia or in Indonesia to use data journalism to talk about gender gap or gender inequality. I've just generated it now, you know. So you have a strong idea you believe in. What you want to do, you want to find the right funders to give you a grant and make a pilot project on that. Otherwise, the other way to do it, you are excellent in doing something. You don't want to change that. You come across an RFP, request for proposal, 
and you forge a project that leverages your methodology and kind of is tailored for that RFP. Or it can be a mix of the two also. You can really combine the two approaches together. And then you need to be able to narrow down your project idea in three sentences. And this is very similar to the startup world. You need to create an elevator pitch. You need to be able to explain your idea to you know, somebody who's not your colleague or your co-founder or you know, somebody who's not in your bubble. You need to be able to test your idea with somebody who doesn't have anything to do with what you're doing to make sure that it makes sense. Possibly, you can share that idea with people who belong to the key audience, the target audience of your project, and you know, get challenged. But it has to be a concise block of text. You don't have to write a research paper. It's like an elevator pitch. This is the core of any application when you apply for a grant, an elevator pitch. It's very similar to the startup world. But instead of like looking for profit, they're looking for impact, for change, and ways to measure it. What happens when you get a grant? So first of all, you write a proposal, okay? You need to design your project in a way that is realistic, impactful, and you need to make sure that you communicate your impact to the donors, because the donors want to know how you are impacting the audience. They want impact stories, so they can republish them on their websites, and they can kind of explain why their donors, because often donors have investors or philanthropy, and they have to make a report explaining how they're using the money. It can be a government, it can be the EU, it can be the German government or the German embassy in one of your countries giving out grants. It can be you know, a foundation like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It can be really anyone. It can be the United Nations. Each donor will want impact stories to document their investment. You can't skip that. You know why? Because they don't give you the money if you do that. So if you don't report back what you're doing in a transparent way, they will not unlock the next installment. Usually they don't give you the money up front. They give you just the first installment up front. If you don't write a progress report or the final report directly, if it's a small grant, they're not going to give you the second installment or the final installment. So it's mandatory. And now you're, you're already seeing that being a one man or one woman team doesn't really work because this is a lot of work. It's a lot of paperwork. So. We're going to touch on this point in a minute, on how to make this efficiently. You need to define impact. What kind of impact are you really proposing? Is that societal impact? Are you trying to change a law? Are you going to write a series of stories and maybe make a podcast and maybe a series of viral videos on uh, uh, Facebook and Instagram and, and TikTok? to change a law, to make a campaign in order to change a specific law or to trigger a reform. If you are that ambitious or if you are successful with that, you're going to get a lot of grants because that's what most donors want. They want you to change in a tangible way the reality you're working into. Okay? But that's not the only type of impact they're looking for. They're also looking for you know, behavioral change. So you, if you're raising awareness around the topic, you can demonstrate that people who are exposed to these kind of new narrations change their behavior, change their perception of reality. 
then okay, you're on track. You are collecting evidences about your impact. But it's an open-ended problem. There's not just one way to do it. But you need to think about it. If you don't think about it, you're not going to get the grant. Or maybe you get a very small grant. Some small grants don't require a lot of thinking in terms of impact. So the larger the grant is, the more you need to be able to document and measure the impact of your work. And there is an entire field of knowledge called ML, Monitoring, Evaluation, and Learning. And basically, this is something that you know, people build careers on. People get specialized into this. You know, if you aspire to become like a grant-funded organization, you probably need an M&E person with you. It can be you, but you know, you are one, you don't want to do everything. So again, it's teamwork. <sighs> so when I wanted to become a journalist, I didn't know that I would end up talking about these things at some point. It's normal, like half an hour ago, we saw something like a crazy budget. Now we're talking about M-E-L. ML. These are things that are important to, you know, to keep the lights on, especially if you are looking into the nonprofit approach to journalism or to, you know, development. So, yeah, I mean, I think we, we can say this. Journalists don't like, I mean, I'm not going to use the H word there, but journalists don't like bureaucracy, but someone have to, you know, will have to deal with it. If you skip it, you're not going to do any kind of important grant-funded work. This is the reality. So you better start thinking about it and build a team of people who have the skills to measure your impact, to write proposals, to write reports, to come up with a sustainable financial model, to write financial reports. You need all these kind of skills. And then you need somebody who's going to sell your idea to donors. You need somebody who speaks the language of donors. So it's a business in a way. And it's a kind of very, very multidisciplinary business. It's a multidisciplinary team, the one you need. You need managers, you need domain experts, and then you need technical experts. So where would you put the journalists here? <laughs> domain experts, very often, very often. But they also, you know, some, sometimes they develop a management skill set, they can become managers. And many of you are an example of this. Others develop technical expertise. They become data scientists or data visualization experts or coders. The situation is getting blurry. You know, these, these borders are blurry. But it's teamwork. You can't have one person doing everything because otherwise that person will burn out or kind of break or it will turn into a bottleneck and you won't grow anymore. So during my clinics today, I suggested think of a team. Don't do everything on your own. Otherwise, you don't, you don't grow. You just suffer. <laughs> and you, you end up hating your job, which is something you really don't want. Because usually the people who enter this business, they are really passionate about what they're doing. And they suffer. They end up suffering that you know, they try to do everything on their own and it doesn't scale, it doesn't really move anywhere at some point. Right, so yeah, this is just some examples of the people who kind of are part of this uh, Venn diagram. So the admins and finance people will be among the managers. The SDG experts or the journalists will be in the domain experts bubble or kind of circle. And then designers, techies, video makers, social media managers, they will be 
technical experts. But again, these borders are blurry. Then when you start growing, you need to create an organigram. So you're literally creating an organization or initiative. I've seen many projects going rug because they didn't have this kind of structure. They were very flat. They had a very horizontal approach and nobody was really responsible for anything. They were responsible for everything and they ended up being responsible for nothing and the project went wrong. So a little bit of structure is useful, in my experience at least. A little bit of hierarchy is useful. There will be somebody signing a contract, right? So there will be somebody also legally responsible for the work. So maybe this person will be sitting somewhere here or above. You need to think about it because you're producing you know, outputs that are used by people, you have a responsibility. So you need a project manager, but you need also somebody who's like responsible from a legal point of view about the work you're doing. But I mean, if you become like a very, very large organization, you're gonna have a legal team, but we're not there yet, right? So you need to think about these things. What happens when things go peer-shaped? So I'm telling you, this happens very often. Some projects get approved. You made a set of assumptions. You signed an agreement. You start the project. Things go in a different direction. It happens all the time for many reasons that we're going to see together. These are some of the pitfalls that I can, I've been seeing often. These are not the only risks, but there are some of the risks that you're going to run into when you do this kind of projects. The, the first one is about timeline, because you need to come up with a timeline when you apply for a grant. And often you don't really know how long it will take to do stuff. People tend to underestimate the time you need to do stuff, especially when you work in a kind of complex environment. So that's pitfall number one. Pitfall number two, it's about team. You haven't structured the team in a, in a proper way. You don't have enough resources to hire people, what do you do in that case? We'll see it now. So you need a partnership mindset, right? Pitfall number three. It was mentioned by Sasa in the morning, partnership mindset. So it's not just treating your donors as partners, but also creating consortium, a consortium of partners who apply for a funding as a joint, with a joint proposal. So you're joining forces with other organizations to apply for a grant. This happens all the time, especially when you apply for large grants. And who manages the consortium? That's a job. And I'll, I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you a little bit of the risk that is around this uh, problem. The project goes rag. At some point, you end up with, you know, the project manager is not really managing the project. Things go rag. What do you do in that case? It happens. Hidden costs, you didn't budget for some of the expenses. What do you do in that case? And then let's talk about due diligence. That's something that, especially when you are in an early stage, you don't know much about. So we'll talk about it. But let's start with number one. So how do you mitigate this risk? A rule of thumb that I have is to get your time buffers in place. So instead of thinking of your timeline as a linear timeline, Put a little bit of time buffer before and after each of the milestones of your project. 
If you don't do that, you're going to run, run into problems because there are always, always problems. So you need to factor the risk in the application. So when you apply for something, you need to think of the unexpected circumstances that will arise as you implement the project. So make sure that you have time buffers before and after each of your milestones. If that's not enough, in some cases you can apply for a no-cost extension. Talk to your donor and say, hey, uh, I don't need more money, I just need more time. But usually that's not something you want. It happens, but you don't want it because it is a no-cost extension, but it actually comes with costs because you're running for longer than expected. So it will trigger costs. Doesn't really mean that they're giving you more money, but they are waiting for you and you are working more, so you're spending more money. So it's not something you want. It's a kind of, uh, we call it extreme ratio kind of solution. It's like when you have no other chances, you, you go for the uh, no-cost extension. It's an option, but you want to avoid it. So what happens when you hire a developer or an illustrator or a video maker and this person gets headhunted by another organization in the middle of the project? What do you do? It's a mess, I'm telling you, because you have very tight timelines, you have a budget, you've already spent half of that budget, and then the project manager gets hired by you choose a company that pays much more maybe, or just, you know, this person wanted to change his or her career. It happens. So you need to build a community of talents or a pool of talents. And this is something that will uh, offer a solution when somebody will uh, quit your team or your initiative. You have somebody else who can immediately join you. This is usually a, a kind of a pool of freelancers or people you know, uh, people you have a trust relationship with, who can jump into your project real quick and you don't need to kind of create a new job ad, recruit. That takes months and months and months and it's, sometimes it's, it's a problem. So you don't have that much time. So as you build your projects, create your community of talents and uh, Splice is an example, how they are excellent at that. They have the Slack community where they know, you know, they try to facilitate connections. So you can also leverage existing communities to do that. But if, you're, if you have an initiative in, in a specific country, you want to have a community in that country or in that region, maybe you can build your own. So this is a way I mitigate that problem. Okay, what happens when you create an alliance of partners who apply for the same funding and uh, they start going to different directions and there's nobody who's really managing the consortium and there is like you end up in this kind of endless meetings where people say I want this I want that uh, I need this I need that and there's a conflict between partners what do you do in that case well you need to think about that before and write MOUs how many of you have ever written an MOU memorandum of understanding two three four people okay yeah so you know what I'm talking about if you skip it it didn't help <laughs> Then maybe, uh, because he didn't capture everything, right? So yeah, you need to be careful. You need to invest time into this. I know it's easier to you know, start the project immediately. You, know, you got the grant, oh wow, that's great. Let's do the project. One month after that, people will start feeling like, oh, oh, the partnership is not going well. 
So there are two things I do normally. So MOUs, invest time into MOUs. I know it's painful, but it will basically be useful. Uh, number two, be diplomatic, or at least have somebody who plays the diplomatic role in your team, who's like getting the heat from the partners. The, the partnership or the consortium might even think of having one person moderating the partnership. It's, it's a cost, but it might be worth. So maybe the leading applicant will play that role, but it, it's not always the case. So you need to think about it before when you are in kind of, you are deciding whether be part of a partnership or not, because some partnerships are just doomed. So maybe you want to avoid them. It's not something you do you know, easily. <laughs> you need to invest time into this. I've seen projects going wrong because there was no project manager. But I think now this is common sense. Having a project manager helps. Uh, if you don't have a coordinator or a project manager, the project will probably become like a headless chicken running randomly into a room. It's, it's, I've seen it happening. So that's why I suggest to have a project manager. It might sound very obvious to you, I, ag I agree, but uh, I've seen many projects going crazy just because there was no, nobody really coordinating all the moving parts. So especially if you start having multiple simultaneous projects, having a project manager would be extremely helpful because, you know, if you have a large nonprofit organization, you might have five, six, seven, eight projects running simultaneously. And if you don't have a project manager assigned to each project, so one project manager can also manage multiple projects simultaneously. But you need it. So hire one. Budget it into your grant. And that's why this works as a segue for the next slide. Capture all the costs in the budget. So project management is one of the costs. Research, design, UI, UX design, coding. So software development, if you're working in a digital environment, as I think you all do. Content production, social media and engagement. Project management, admin. So financial operations, HR, recruitment. This is all you know, increasing the costs. Then, are you going to travel? Cost. Contingency costs. So some donors don't like it, but some do. So you can put like 1% for contingency costs. And then in indirect costs, normally these cover admin or other, uh, other costs uh, that you're not really documenting in detail in the budget. But it's usually maybe up to 10%, according to my experience. There, it depends on the grant, it depends on the donor, it depends on the geographic region. But you know, usually the budgets have an indirect cost item. Uh, the budgets I've dealt with are, so the most complex ones are like the ones we saw before during the investment uh, workshop. So some of you were here. Extremely difficult budgets with like 10 sheets. The larger the grant is, the, the more complex the, the budget is. But for you know, up to $100,000, you probably don't need that level of complexity. And you, know, you don't need to be graduated in finance to, to handle it. You just need to be familiar with a little bit of financial planning. But yeah, it's a cost. Somebody who's doing that kind of work needs to be paid. So. And then finally, due diligence. So let's say that you're just starting as a nonprofit. 
you're probably not registered anywhere. Like you're not an, an official nonprofit organization, but you're still getting some kind of funding, very small. If you start growing, you will be required to register because donors will run due diligence on you. So they want to know that you really exist. They want to know that you are governed uh, properly, that you have sound financial systems, that you work efficiently, and that you know, your team has all the skills you need to receive that grant, and that you are transparent, and you are ethical, and that you're not like, involved into kind of illegal work. So all this needs to be taken into account, taken into account. There are some links in these slides that I can share with you later to know more about due diligence, for example. But admins will help you. So these are, this is a summary of the key takeaways that I, I, I shared with you. There is another keyword here. This is level of effort, LOE. Have you ever heard about it? So grants often don't fund full-time positions. So you can't just fund 100% of your CFO cost or your financial officer cost into one single grant. It's very rare that that's possible. But they will cover the LOE, the level of effort of that person in the team or in the project. So let's say 25% of the time of your financial officer, of your designer, of your illustrator, of your editor will be covered by this grant because they expect you to have other grants or other revenues to cover the rest of it. So this is something you need to think of as part of your strategy. You know, you know that you're going to get more grants and you're going to cover the cost of each individual, of each role for a percentage with each grant. It can be that you have somebody in your team who is 100% dedicated to a grant, but sometimes one person is working on multiple projects and donors know that. So they want to see it in, in, uh, in your documentation, in your paperwork. So they expect you to send timesheets. You know, timesheets, it's annoying, but they, they want it. So especially if you are like applying for large grants, they expect you, some donors expect you to send in timesheets that are signed by the, you know, the COO or the, or the kind of financial officer or somebody who's part of your admin team. So there you go. All these ingredients are necessary if you want to run a non-profit business or a non-profit organization. And uh, here there was a tuk-tuk emoji. For some reason it's not showing up. <laughs> you can get this deck from that link. You can get the workshop material either here on paper or on that link. And I hope you will follow me on, on social media to see what kind of work I'm doing. Even if it's not in Asia, it's mostly in between Europe and Africa, but a lot of the things I see there probably are applicable here in this region of the world. So feel free to follow me. And now we have only a few minutes left. So you can take that exercise with you, work on it when you have time, and then send me some pictures. So thank you for listening first. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to a session recording from Splice Beta 2022. Let us know what you think. You'll find us on splicemedia.com. This is a Splice Podcast.
and is produced by Norman Chella at Podchaser. We'd like to thank our sponsors Google, International Fund for Public Interest Media, International Media Support, Konrad Adenauer Stiftung, Luminate, Media Development Investment Fund, Meta, and Telemedia. This is Splice.